Hello and welcome back to Cows and Tone Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the Lady of the Lake Chapter 8. But first, before that, some administrative stuff. Uh, you may have noticed there wasn't a an episode last week. Uh, you know, if you're listening to this as it comes out, if you're listening in the future, hello. But you won't have noticed. Um, basically, I have decided, uh, after much thinking, uh, to adopt a bi-weekly format. Um, originally this was going to be done post-Witcher, because the show, Kazutonomolog, will be splitting into two separate formats, and I wanted to have one episode of each format out each month, uh, after Witcher. It's, it's gonna become basically a, a, a different feel to the show. It's gonna still be the same thing, uh, but there's gonna be some new stuff, and, uh, I was going to switch the bi-weekly then, but due to life situations and, and so forth, it has just been more pragmatic in order to just go ahead and switch the bi-weekly and then explain the split and change in format, uh, after, uh, after Witcher in regards to the way that the, the episodes will be done and produced, um, you know, this is just a teaser, you know, I'm not going to spoil too much, but I'm going to give you a hint that Josh is going to feature more. Uh, there's going to be a side thing for just me. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, something old and something new um, in regards to this podcast. So just to give you some hints. So with all that said and done, just letting you guys know bi-weekly format from now on. So there won't be another episode for another two weeks after this. Um, so, chapter 8 is the Battle of Brenna, which is, uh, one of the most memorable chapters, uh, in, in regards to this book specifically, and a lot of people have written essays on the Battle of Brenna, and how, uh, it's one of the most, um, authentic portrayals of a pitched battle in, in fiction, that it doesn't, uh, shy away from various things, and it, you know, it, it shows the horrors of war from multiple perspectives, and the way in which war stories are told in media vary depending on the medium and the intent of the story. This tries to combine all of it into one, giving a sort of a mosaic feel uh, to, to the situation, which is more... Uh, encompassing and more authentic to the true experience. Um, you know, look at something like, say, Babylon 5, where we focused on our main characters uh, in this war, um, then uh, heard about the aftershocks or the other battles and stuff. Then look at something, say, like 1917, a very good film uh, in which uh, we follow two messengers as they hurry from one uh, one front to another to deliver this particular message. Um, it's a next to inconsequential story about the horrors of war on these two very particular people. Much like Babylon 5 is about the all-encompassing political ramifications of a war on our core cast. Then you have things like, um, you know, uh, Lord of the Rings films that, uh, that show the, you know, the, the fighting in e sometimes in ways that's almost glorifying. I, I know that wasn't the intention, uh, especially because those books are incredibly anti-war, but like the, the entire number counting between Legolas and Gimli and the, the, the power sliding on a, on a shield kind of thing at Helm's Deep, it's very much action movie flavor rather than reality. 
um, it's heightened, it's fantasy. And then you look at things like comics and stuff, and you often have these heightened ideas. And there are various ways you can try and, you know, microcosm it, like focus on X amount of characters. You can widen the scope, show the true horror, or you can do the way Sapkowski does it, in which it's a mosaic. It's a series of vignettes, each leading to each other from various perspectives, from various different people across the battlefield and in past and present, as well as civilians, etc., uh, basically observing this situation, experiencing this situation, and it's how it's chaotic and miserable and no one's going to get out there unscathed. You know, we open, you know, talking about uh, the... The, uh, the idea that, that that this battle actually was not fought in Brenna. It was fought between two villages, Old Bottoms and Brenna. And uh, history only remembers Brenna, so that's why it gets its name that way. Much like the real-life Battle of Hastings has been disputed, whether it actually took place in the Hastings, etc. Long, ongoing historical debate, not getting into that. Uh, but history tries to to smooth the edges over everything. When you read about particular battles and particular things that happened, especially if it's at least, uh, you know, 100 or more years ago, the, the Pacifics are a lot less clear, and they will tend to only focus on the major stuff and sort of smooth over all that stuff and it, it's always attributed to like the one general or the, the the one leader whatever who did this great thing you know the the battle of valley forge is always attributed directly to general uh, george washington even though he was only one part of that cog and i'm not downplaying his significance in that in that battle um or that campaign in general or the revolutionary war in america but he was one of many and uh history looks for the one not the many and so we get to counterbalance that with you know we see we see the moment then we go to say, the Nilfgaardian Cadet Academy, where we see, you know, these uh, these cadets are training to become officers, and they have to write about these stuff. And little, small, insignificant details that we get to see as true, uh, like the, the, the absurdity um, of Minokohorn's death just being brushed aside, because uh, that's too stupid. That would have never happened, even though reality is often more mundane than we like to think it is. Or, you know, uh, we we counterbalance, you know, Cornette's, you know, messenger run with Pretty Kitty, uh, Julia Buttermarco's commentary at an older age, to Yara fighting on the line, you know, holding his pike up versus, you know, the way in which he will later write about this as a scholarly person. And it, it's this back and forth. It, it brings to mind this theme that has been throughout the entire books of the way in which we write history and the way history is changed to fit a particular narrative or smoothed over or whatever, good facts versus true facts, and how that even goes down to the minute details you know, honorable people are not acknowledged in history because what does that have to do with anything? We need to glorify this or we need to propagandize that. And in the way in which Spikowski just narrows in on that, creates this mosaic, and you pick up small tidbits from each part of the battle, from every side, 
from the people who are observing to the people who are in it, from Nilfgaard to the northerners, to the mercenaries, to the dwarves, uh, to to the medical tent, you know, that that's the way in which he weaves this story. It's not about tactics. It's not about how many troops they had. It's not about winning. It's not about losing. It's about the experience and how no plan ever survives the, you know, encounter with the enemy. Uh, during the beginning of the, 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 the chapter, when we are learning about the situation and, and we swap between Yen Natalis and Minakuhor and giving their tactics and their ideas, that quickly gives way to chaos as time unfolds. And we see the ridiculousness of the idea that war can be organized, that war can be clean, that it can be a th fundamentally organized thing, some a spreadsheet, if you will. That it is chaos, that it is misery. Uh, this line by Pretty Kelly the, the, from her older self looking back that they were all brave men. Every single one of them. You know, that everyone here is fighting, but at the end of the day, they're not fighting for a belief or anything. They are fighting because they were told to, because that was their job. There's that one small moment of like when, when the first. Uh, mounted cavalry gets pulverized, and it's like the 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 first thought on the the soldier's you know mind before he blacked out from the pain and died was, who started this? What was this all for? These soldiers don't care about you know the flag, the purpose, whatever. They're fighting because that's what they were told to do. And this counterbalances the previous chapter that Josh was in, uh, which talked about patriotism and the belief to fight for your freedom and how that all goes out the window the moment your life is in jeopardy. All of this really just combines to show the chaotic nature of battles, the way in which we observe these things, the way history will write them down, the way scholars will contradict them, the way in which propaganda gets in its way, and how the small, insignificant stories are forgotten in the name of great men or great powers. All history will remember of this great battle was Jan Natalis ordering a particular thing. The messenger he sent, Cornet, arrived late. Well, technically, the North Guardians arrived early. So his message meant nothing whatsoever at all. And Cornet ends up getting murdered. Uh, you know, on his way back, being trampled. History will remember that Yan made that call, sent that message. History will not remember Cornet Aubrey, young 17-year-old kid who was doing this service to his country, who wanted to deliver a message to the Free Company and the Dwarves, arrived at the wrong time and was murdered before he ever really had a chance to live. History will remember that. They'll remember Yan Natalis ordering it. And that shows us, through Sapkowski clearly creating this mosaic of story upon story upon story, uh, of perspective upon perspective upon perspective, of the way in which battles are perceived there, from afar, from the past, from the future. And that, I think, signifies what this chapter is about and trying to put together the themes uh, of Witcher, because we've talked about good facts versus real facts before, and it, it, that especially became prevalent here in this book. That was like a major theme of this book, especially early on with the Codweamers um, and Nimue stuff. And so to then 
you know, transition to a chapter that has none of our main characters, that is all side characters, um, you know, from minor insignificant characters to uh, reoccurring characters, um, coming back in a way uh, and doing this and seeing their perspective. The stuff in the tent, I think, encapsulates that. Because we get to see that from Rusty, Milo van der Beek, you know, uh, Marty Sodergren, uh, and Shani, and, and Iola, the cost of what's going on. They couldn't give a shit about the war. They couldn't give a shit about what's going on. They are doctors that heal people. And that is the one and only thing they will ever do. And they're treating people from every side. And there's a lot of great snippet scenes in particular. Um, it, it's probably the scenes that define this chapter. Everybody comes away from the Battle of Brenna either talking about the way in which it you psychologically shows in way the ways of pitch battle is done and the way history will perceive it, or they come talking about the characters of the hospital tent. Because um, each scene there is mortifying in various ways. And you get small segments like, you know, the just the idea that a soldier uh, doesn't want to be amputated, but there's no choice, or the quick exploration of, uh, you know, somewhat on the table, that triage is a particular kind of medicine you treat those who can be treated, those who are dying, you give them a quick relief from the uh, from what's happening and move on. You don't have time for anything else. You do as, as much as you can with as little time as possible and you move to the next. It is a very methodical and a very callous way of doctoring, but it's required in this kind of circumstances. And because of that, everyone in that tent is, re is reduced to equals. There are the dying, there's the injured, and there's the doctors. That's it. Those are the entire amount of class in that entire tent. And so when we get Daniel Echeverry showing back up, you know, severely injured, uh, and the, his, his people are like, this is the count, you must operate. And Rusty like, no, not what this is about. He goes into the next in line, the end of story. There are no counts here. There are the injured, there's the dying, and then there's me. And then we, you know, Cohen, finding Cohen's body, uh, you know, just a small, insignificant passage. But it shows that Triss's statement in Blood of Elves meant something to him. He was the one that reflected most on her, uh, on her talk about neutrality and, and Geralt, you know, fighting against that. You know, I will, you know, I will help a Nifgardian if I have to, you know, I will fight in these ruins until the day I die. Cohen was obviously the most affected by that. And so he went and he took his chance. He fought for what Triss wanted him to fight for. And so that's what he did. And he ended up dead. Killed not by a soldier, not by anyone in particular, not some great other anti-witcher or anything, any fantasy cliche. He died to a peasant with a pitchfork, fighting in this battle because he too was pressured into it. Nothing special, nothing spectacular. He died like a dog for no reason at all. And that is the one truth in war. People die and that's it. All this death, senseless, meaningless, no purpose whatsoever, and yet people die. There's a quote that I just quoted earlier that I think really summarizes what 
what that that entire Cohen bit is. In battle, you will die like a dog for no reason at all on the fact that you were in the way, basically. And that is what Cohen's death represents. He was this witcher, this mythological fantasy idea killed by a pitchfork. And I think that all revolves around that kind of thing of... We, we see, like, when the Vryhead Brigade, you know, infiltrates the hospital tent, the, they're, they're wanting to kill these people. And, uh, you know, a literal war crime, by the way. Uh, you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> and uh, until they see that Rusty is treating those on both sides, and they realize the hypocrisy this. They realize that Milo, Shani, Marty, Iola don't have sides. They're a doctor. They, they have the dying and the injured. That's all they see. They don't see flags. They don't see nations. They don't see sides. And I think that really sends them up the wall because they don't, you know, the Vrahi Brigade... Because they are essentially, you know, inherited Scoia'tael units. They've grown up in this world believing in nothing but sides. Nothing but the cycle of violence that never ends. And when Milo stands up to them and says, No, the only people here who are killing people are you. I'm saving people. Get out of my tent. You know, that scene reminds me of two particular things. Uh, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly has a scene in which Blondie and Tuco join up uh, against the Confederacy just because they're trying to cross this bridge. And it's a, it's, an, it's a really sad moment where we get to see from their perspectives, you know, all they want is to cross the bridge to get some money. This war doesn't mean shit to them. And we see the medical tent and we see all these people dying in misery and they blow that bridge. Not for the fact that they need to get across. It's because they made a promise to end this suffering. They they want to get across and get the gold. And blowing the bridge will mean that no one else can cross it. And they fulfill their promise to the, the commander who is dying on that table. And I think, you know, that just... That, that sense of obligation, of that doctors don't see sides as comes through in that, even in a story focused on the most selfish of selfish people. The God, the Man, the Ugly is about horrible, horrible human beings who have no sense of morality whatsoever. And yet they even see this. And they realize what that means. And then Franklin's monologue in uh, the episode of View from the Gallery, uh, when I believe it's Bo, uh, or is it Mac, uh, one of them asks uh, Franklin, you know, why did you become a doctor? And, you know, why are you going to treat? Why are you trying to treat the other side? You know, if I see one of them bleeding on the ground, I'm going to let him buy it. Because, you know, I know that if I help him, that's another one of my guys down. And he goes, why? Why not? And he tells the story of how his dad and the small minor skirmish, you know, was captured by the other side. And the doctor wouldn't let him die, kept him alive. And he waited so long to see if his dad was still alive. And when he got the, the news, he realized that's what he wanted to be. He wanted to be a doctor. He wanted to see life prevail. 
And then when asked what happened to that other side's doctor who kept his dad alive, even against orders, what happened to him? He said he was shot. He was killed for being a traitor. Doctors don't see flag. They don't see sides. They see the injured and they see the dying. And they took an oath to help no matter what. And that right there is the most optimistic view of this entire chapter. It says that everyone here does not want to be here or is here out of some other obligation, but that goes all out the window the moment the fighting happens and the killing starts. But the people in the tent, they have a purpose, and their purpose has never changed from day one. And that right there is a symbolic idea of what it means to be in a battle like this. A battle that will change everything. It's the Battle of Waterloo. It's the Battle of the Somme. It's the Battle of the Bulge. It's a very important turning point to history. And while, yes, you know, as Yara points out in his in his uh, future writings, that Battle of Britain wasn't the last battle of the war. It was a turning point in which Yanatelis and the others took advantage of, of Nilfgaardian's loss, and turned the tide. But it wasn't the end, but the way history will remember it is the end. It's like, this was the official big moment. It wasn't, but that's the way history will remember it. But what's important is to remember that the, the people there took this into their minds and didn't forget it. Then we close out the chapter with small, minor, insignificant moments. Showing the effect this had. That Yara lost his arm. He lost his friend. He eventually became a well-renowned scholar. You know, he had a grandchild named Siri, named after the person that changed him, that made him want to be like this, who made him want to serve his country. We see that Marty Sodogren, you know, fell in love with this patient. And because of the nature of sorceresses, saw it as a casual thing and was killed because she was caught sleeping around. We see that Rusty and Iola, they will go, you know, in, you know, in and treat um, the outbreak, one of the biggest outbreaks there has ever been of the Cassiano Plague, the plague Siri brought here to this world. And because there was no cure, that didn't matter to them. They did it because it was right. And they died because of it. They were infected. Shani, she'll go on to be the Dean of Medicine in, in Oxenfurt. And while she survives and retires, the trauma of this event stays with her. She is well known for her famous saying, red to red, white to white, yellow to yellow, so like that and everything will be fine. That is Rusty's saying, and all history will remember of it is that the human Shawnee said it. And while she is very upset of saying it, no one will ever question why, that it belonged to a halfling who did everything he can and could to keep others alive. Minnow Cohorn is a historical joke. Three times, in fact. Uh, he is named after um, the uh, Minnow Baron von Cohorn, a 17th century Dutch soldier and military engineer. Uh, he refuses to escape in the exact same manner that the uh, Polish Crown uh, Grand Hetman, which means General uh, Stanislaw Zlotsky, 
once again, I ain't Polish, I ain't pronouncing that correctly, um, did, uh, he was famous for conquering Moscow, and one of the greatest Polish generals, he died, uh, in the Battle of, uh, Kikora, against the Tartars, and then, uh, the lament of the legend about him, that, uh, that you can supposedly find his spirit on the battlefield, that he returned, uh, was, give me back my legions, was, uh, is a saying often attributed to, uh, the emperor, or the Roman emperor Augustus, in the aftermath of the battle of the Tittelberg Forest, in which several legions were massacred by Germanic tribes. His escape, you know, he, he's given by a lowly officer this cloak, you know, run for your life, this is a lost cause, that Novogorod got too big for the britches, and they, they got too certain in their superiority, and that cost them. So he charges away, and then he gets stuck between lines, and then dwarves stumble upon him, and the dwarves can't understand him. Uh, well, they kind of do, but he's saying things wrong. and uh, But he thinks he can speak the, the dwarven language. And because of his... Uh, cloak with the insignia they they kill him because they couldn't understand him exactly all they saw was the insignia of the, of the people that killed Caleb Stratton so he died in this you know mud killed by nobody dwarves dwarves we care about because it's it Zoltan and Yarpin's group but at the end of the day no one can remember the Mahakam volunteers they were put in the, the worst spots for the simple fact that they were non-humans and they were guaranteed to die. And they ended up, you know, sending the one shot that killed the Nilfgaardian leader. That will never be acknowledged. The idea that he died to dwarves in a swamp area? Ridiculous. He, you know, he fled a heroic deal. And there's a legend about how his spirit roams this battlefield to this day. That's more plausible, right? Good fact versus real fact. The Battle of Brenna is a fantastic chapter. It's not the kind of chapter that is my love. My love of the chapters always come from specific character stuff. And this is far more a, a macro story. I've talked about how Witcher is a macro story told on a micro scale. This is the one time Sapkowski indulges on the macro scale. And I think it works because it's intentionally a confusing mosaic. A, a series of vignettes to show the chaos and the misery and the horror of war. No one comes out this good. Everybody comes out losing. There's no such thing as winning in war. Only loss. The loss of life. It's a beautiful ode to that kind of thing. And as I said, I am nowhere near an expert. Uh, please look up essays. People have written many essays on it. Um about the idea of the Battle of Brenna and how it's one of the most accurate depictions of a pitched battle in the uh, in the novel form by simple virtue of the fact that it is drawing from the chaotic nature to the psychological nature to the historical jokes. I mentioned the Minnow Cohorn stuff. There's a few other ones. And as well as it takes time to then make fun of Tolkien with the Redanian, you know, relief troops showing up who are flying the eagle. The eagles! You know, it, it's also taking the time to continue Sapkowski's, you know, brand of taking the fantasy tropes and then making fun of them. Uh, and so, you know, it's a delightful chapter. It's a depressing chapter. But it's a chapter full of heart. 
and it's a very different chapter than things we've seen. Its closest equivalent is that chapter in which Dijkstra and Eistrid Tyson have a negotiation, of which we see the aftermath here, because Pretty Kitty and all of them are from that negotiation. You know, it, it's it's the one in few times he, he, you know, tries to indulge that macro story, showing that this war being fought, the lives being lost, or for Siri, Yen and Geralt, everyone here is dying essentially for them, but they have no clue who they are. Their story and the macro world this, the, these two things are combined, are connected, are the same thing. But no one really can connect that outside of the legends and us, the reader. I'll see you next time, in two weeks' time. Again, switching to a bi-weekly format. Bye.